0: I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our very special featured recording today is of James Laughlin, yes, the founder of New Directions Publishing House. Laughlin is a much better poet than most people realize, and so I was happy to interview him back in the late 1990s, not long before he passed away, and to have him read from his work. And now I'm very happy to present that recording for you. And then I'll be doing a little talking about E.E. Cummings. Uh, Stick around. You're going to enjoy this.
1: We're here in the Connecticut country home of James Lachlan, who is known to some of you as a publisher, as a correspondent with other famous writers throughout the 20th century, as the person who brought a lot of us some of the great literature of the world in English translation through his publication, House New Directions, but we really don't care about that today. The only reason we're here with the Poetry Motel is because James Laughlin is a wonderful poet in his own right, and as usual, we're here to talk to him about his poetry and to hear him read his poetry. If I were to abstract in the extreme... From what reviewers have said about his work over the years, I would say he is known for wonderful love poems, a great sense of humor, and a good deal of erudition, which is an interesting mix of characteristics. And you also said, um, somewhere, maybe in the title to a poem, that a poem is a natural thing. Yes, that's
2: that's true. It comes from it comes somehow out of a level of nature though that nothing, nothing there's no way to define what poetry is uh, Pound used to say that he he quoted an old Latin writer who says that ut uh, doceat, ut moviat, ut delectet that is, it teaches us it uh, we enjoy it and, and it gives us pleasure and that is the final definition for me of a poem and unfortunately, I very seldom attain the level of that demand. You, you've said we're in a dark time for poetry, actually. Yes, it is a dark time. I think it's, it's, it's. Uh, I, I, you'd have to talk to a, a social critic, really, to get this pitch on that. Uh, why all these poets? Why all these people suddenly want to be poets uh, when they would be much better off if they had a, a nice job in the in the library or even in the uh, GM uh, factory Uh, there's this strange (laughs) urge I have a poem about this I don't have it here today about uh, the 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 fellow I met in out in uh, was out in Santa Fe and he he spent all of his time wanting to be a poet and talking about poetry and he never so far as I know ever wrote a single poem but it was uh, being a poet was a, was a, a kind of a self deification, uh, uh, raising yourself mm-hmm. to a higher level. And there's a lot of that going
1: on. Now, no, no, didn't somebody um, long time ago suggest you, suggest you uh, when you showed him your? Is this true or not? Am I remembering right? Uh, an anecdote about you showing your poems to somebody, maybe Ezra Pound, and he said, "That's fine, Sonny. Maybe you should become a publisher." Right. Right, that was Pound. I was
2: studying with him uh, in Rapallo in 1934. It was a wonderful experience. I I mean, Pound, unfortunately, was was dotty, Uh, so he did a number of objectionable things, uh, such as being anti-Semitic and being pro-fascist, but he knew more about poetry at that time. Than anybody else, except perhaps T. S. Eliot, mm-hmm. and he would share his knowledge with uh, young people who drifted in, and he ran what he called the Esuversity mm-hmm. which I was happy to attend. And uh, he, as yes, he, I used to, you know, show him poems, and he'd, excuse me, he'd say, uh, "You don't need that word. What do you really mean here? You don't need that word." And then, then he'd throw the him on the floor and he said, you should get into something useful. Uh, maybe you could be a publisher. That doesn't take much intelligence. So I became a publisher. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the story. That's the end of the I story. Oh, the, well, the story of Pound is endless. I've, I've written a book on Pound, which is called Pound As Was, mm-hmm. where I've tried to reconcile his good qualities uh, with some apology for his bad qualities. And put it all together, what he was really like.
1: Let's hear some poems.
2: This is a poem which uh, I always use as a kind of invocation. You know, the classical poets were always invoking some deity or other. is an invocation and it's my invoca- calling forth to my muse or whoever it is that is sending me my poems. Now, if you were looking at this poem on the page, you would see that it's written in couplets and that the what defines the meter is the length of the separate lines of the couplets and this was a meter which I got from my old friend William Carlos Williams mm-hmm. who said that the typewriter was, was the vehicle of the new age and I'd better use it and this is called, this is, this is called the person the person who writes my poems lives in some other sphere he sends them to me through space when he feels like it they arrive complete from beginning to end and all i have to do is type them out who is that person what is he to me i wonder about him but we'll never know who is he the other thing that you'll notice about my poems are verses i prefer to call them verses Mm -hmm nobody should aspire to be a poet till he's been dead for 50 years uh, my verses is that they mean what they say and I don't decorate them in any way uh, it's, they are simple uh, simply it's very simple statements of, of, of what I want to get across and here is one this is a long one maybe too long oh, no. this is Do called it. I was raised in Pittsburgh in the upper middle class and this is called Easter in Pittsburgh this is social history I like this one even on Easter Sunday when the church was a jungle of lilies and ferns fat uncle Paul who loved his liquor so would pound away with both fists on the stone pulpit shouting sin 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 and the fiery fires of hell and I cried all afternoon the first time I heard what they did to Jesus it was something the children should not know about till they were older but the new maid told me and both of us cried a lot and so mother got another one and she sent away Miss Richardson who came all the way from England because she kept telling how her fiance Mr. Bose Lyon died suddenly of a heart attack he just said one day at lunch I'm afraid I'm not well, and the next thing they knew, he was sliding under the table. Easter was nice, the eggs were silly, but the big lilies were wonderful. And when Uncle Paul got so fat from drinking that he couldn't squeeze into the pulpit anymore and had to preach from the floor, there was an elders meeting, and they said they would have the pulpit rebuilt. But Uncle Paul said no, it was the Lord's manifest will, and he would... Pass his remaining years in sacred studies. I liked Thanksgiving better because that was the day that Father took us down to the mills. But Easter I liked most, next best, and the rabbits died because we fed them beet tops, and the lamb pulled up the grass by the roots and was sold to Mr. Page the busher. I asked Uncle Robert what were sacred studies. He said he was not really sure, but he guessed they came in a bottle. And mother sent me away from the table when I wouldn't eat my lamb chops. That was ridiculous, she said. It wasn't the lamb of God. It was just Caesar Andromica nibbles. But I couldn't, I just wouldn't. And the year of the strike, we didn't go to church at all on Easter because they said it wasn't safe downtown. So instead, we had prayers in the library. And then right in the middle, the telephone rang. It was Mr. Shupstead at the mill they had had to use tear gas father made a special prayer right away for God's protection and mercy and then he sent us out to the farm with mother we stayed a week and missed school but it rained a lot and I broke the bathroom mirror and had to learn a long sob life <laughs> in Pittsburgh when, when I was growing up again. I
1: was going to ask you about that one uh, that was in my list of poems to ask you about because it is uncharacteristically long And uh... yeah I don't I usually write short Short verses, yeah. but
2: uh, in this case, I was I was trying to, to give a to paint a picture of what the life was like for a child in that environment. And one idea after another came to me, and I put it in.
1: Yeah, I like the way it rolls through the the different scenarios, it gets going one way and then slips over another way and back another way. Well, the the
2: construction of of the piece is all association.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I don't sit down. I never sit down to write a poem. I just let them come in one ear and if they're any good they stay there and the construction is association, purely association. Hmm. Nothing is ever really planned. This one is, has been anthologized a lot and this is about the relationship between a father and his children and this is called Step on His Head. Let's step on daddy's head, shout the children, my dear children, as we walk in the country on a sunny summer day. My shadow bobs dark on the road as we walk and they jump on its head and my love for them fills me all full of soft feelings. Now I duck with my head so they'll miss when they jump and they screech with delight and I moan, oh you're hurting, you're hurting me. Stop and they jump all the harder and love fills the whole road But I see it run on through the years And I know how someday they must jump When it won't be this shadow But really my head As I stepped on my own father's head It will hurt, really hurt And I wonder if then I'll have enough love Will I have love enough When it's not just a game Here's a little thumbnail verse of I, I have a whole series of of village poems. A uh, place where we live has only 2,000 people. So it's still a village. It's not been much commercialized or much changed. I have a whole series of poems about uh, what I've perceived as this village life, which is uh, a life. It's not a working class village. It's a, it's a God knows what a lot of them do. I think they take in each other's washing. <laughs> but they're very nice people. This is called Junk Mail junk mail is a pleasure to at least one person a dear old man in our town was drifting off into irreality. he walks each morning to the post office to dig the treasure from his box he spreads it out on the lobby counter and goes through it with care and delight this is the it was the title of my third book in another country and it's about italy at the time when i was Working with Ezra Powell. Oh, but that's an interesting story. But he is not mentioned in the poem. Well, I know about that. um, The girl girl is, certainly. Oh, God, the girl. I've still got a a postcard here of her in her bathing suit, and it would sizzle you. I mean, she was something. Well, let's let's say. Now, this poem, or verse, is written in Italian and English and the theory is that you say what you really want them to understand in English and then you put in a little uh, Italian lines to give it flavor and also to try to reproduce the the way that the girl talked Mm. and it's in sections the first one is called tesoro which means treasure tesoro she would say with that succulent accent on the middle o as if she were holding something as precious as the golden testicles of a god and then the next section is called credere, credere obediere combattere believe, obey, fight I guess it was the same thing all over Italy in it big white letters painted up on walls and especially on railroad retaining walls at the grade crossings And to make a good record and show how things were inordinate, they would let down the crossing bars ten minutes before the trains came so people were backed up on both sides in crowds, shouting across to each other, all a big joke. And that's how we met, where we first saw each other. I was on the upside, walking back to town from swimming, and she was on the other side with her bicycle, heading to the cove, wearing her tight white sweater with nothing under it and her gray checked skirt and sandals Era come Beatrice al ponte quando si vedero la prima volta there by that bridge in Florence where he first saw her Later one day she brought her schoolbook of Dante so I could see the famous painting lore al ponte al ponte only neither of us was shy First we were looking, then we were smiling, and when the train had finally passed and we met in the middle, I just took hold of her bicycle and walked beside her. But you have swum already. I can see your hair's all wet. Why do you want to go again? Why do you think, I said. Ma bruta. I'm ugly. Sono bruta. And at the cove she changed behind a big rock into her suit. It was white and tight, too. Di piace, she asked, you like it? The water was very clear that day, and the rocks were warm. There was a German boy came nosing around, but she wasn't nice to him, and he went away. After we swam, we sat on the rocks, sunning and talking. I knew only a few words of Italian then, but we found another language that did well enough. I draw a picture of the word I wanted with my finger on her thigh, or she on mine. The sky was clear, the air was soft with just a little breeze. I was 18, she was 15, and her name was Leontina. Going back to town, she had me ride her on the handlebars and put her arms around my neck to keep from falling off. She didn't want an ice cream. Mama, mas a la casa. My mother's waiting for me, so I'd better just leave you here. Ma sei tu voi stasera dopo la passeggiata al angolo, near the newsstand. Quando sono le nove? Yes, I said, I'll be there at nine o'clock after the church bells. sound nine. And this section is called Giacomino, Little James. Giacomino, she called. Viene qua? Splashing her arms in the clear green water. Viene subito? So I followed her, swimming around a point of rock to the next cove. Vieni qua, non hai paura. And she slipped like an eel beneath the surface, down through the sunken entrance to a hidden grotto, where the light was soft and green on fine-grained sand. È eh bello, no? Here we can be together by ourselves. Nobody else has ever been here with me, and it's my secret place. Here, kiss me here. I found it when I was a little girl. Now touch me here. Estrano questa luce? come un altro mondo? So strange this light. Am I all green? It's like another world. Does that feel good? Don't be afraid. Siamo incantati. We're enchanted in another world. Oh Giacomino, uh, Giacomino. Sai tu amore come tu, come lui e bello come carina sai quanto tu mi dai piacere sai come leti vuol bene lie still non andare via just lie still then there's another little section Genovese which means of Genoa Genovese non sono I'm Roman it comes from my father look at my nose he went straight down from her father like coins, you see, from Etruria. And then the final section, the sad part, Tornerai, will you return? She wept, will you come back for me? I wanted to slip away, but she found out the time of the train and was there in the compartment, wearing her Sunday dress and the Milanese scarf I had given her. Tornerai, amore mio, will you come back and bring me to America? Crying and pressing my hands against her breasts, my face wet with her tears and her kisses, till the train stopped at Geneva and they made her get off because I couldn't buy her a ticket. It's
1: certainly the best poem I've ever heard about studying with Ezra Pound. Well,
2: it's, it was you know it was my first there. experience wow. of girls, yeah. and uh, she was quite well, an well, experienced teacher even at fifteen. This is more about the, my position in the village where I live. Ah, and it's called The Shameful Profession. For years, I tried to conceal from the villages, villagers that I wrote poetry. I didn't want them to know that I was an oddball. I didn't want the young men with beards wearing baseball caps who come to the liquor store in their pickups to buy six-packs to know that I was some kind of a sissy. I decided it was prudent to buy the daily news instead of the Times at the pharmacy. I burned my poem drafts at home before I took the trash to the dump. Kids scavenge around there and the old man who does the recycling is nosy. I took every precaution. (laughs) But our town is not an easy place to keep secrets. Everybody knows everybody, and they gossip when they're getting their mail at the post office. Things began to come apart. A young man with long hair and a city accent showed up and asked in the stores where the poet Lachlan lived. Then a pipe burst, the plumber told people that he saw thousands of books stacked in the cellar, some of them in foreign languages. Next day the head of the volunteer fire department came pretending to check the wiring. I began to get a bit paranoid. The town trooper is supposed to check each rural road once a week, but he came up our road past my house three days in succession. The axe fell when somehow a reporter for the country paper heard the rumors and there was a little item. Local poet caught speeding twice on Highway 272. Motor Vehicles may suspend License. Much has changed in my life now. Nobody has laughed at me in the street. After all, I'm six feet high and weigh 240 pounds, but they look at me in a funny way. I don't go to Apple House or grocery store anymore because a little girl with her finger in her nose pointed me out to the checkout lady and asked for something. Now I get my liquor and supplies in the next towns and order honey-baked hams from Virginia by mail. My life is all different now that they know I write poems. But if they think they can shame me out of it, they're much mistaken. I'm not breaking any law. I'll go on with it unless they have me declared a public nuisance and have me sent to the Institute. I've heard there's a poor old fellow in the Institute who claims he is Henry Wordsworth Longfellow. He'll understand and be my friend. We can recite to each other if they won't let us have paper and pencils." That's village
1: life. You know, like Henry Wordsworth Longfellow? Oh, yes, that's the way it is. Well, when I read your poetry, you know, one of the flashes I have that ran through my mind is, I think yours is about the first poet I ran into since E.E. E. Cummings, where I had this strong feeling that you have a a genuine affection for women. Oh, well,
2: uh, Cummings
1: was not a... I knew him well,
2: and he was not a philanderer in any sense at all. He was devoted to Marion, who was a brilliant woman and a beauty, and was his wife. And I used to go over there from the office to see him for tea now and then, and he was very happily married. he was a terribly witty fellow, mm-hmm. and of course that comes out in his poems I think where these yeah. wonderful bits of uh, jeu d'esprit in the in the poems and i don't i get, got a little tired of his uh, you know his what's what is the word his disarranging Letters and a word mm-hmm. to get a, a visual effect. I don't think that works very well, but when he's just uh, uh, when he's just writing straight, it's gorgeous. And it, it it despairs me that he is so little uh, known. I mean, he's only been dead twenty years, and he's already so little known. It's it's mm-hmm. awful. And. Uh, I think you come back, you see, there are, there are cycles with, with poets' lives. No, they, the, in the books you can read that, that uh, Herrick, William Herrick, wasn't, wasn't read for 30 years after his death. Uh, who knows why? It was way back in the 1700s. And who, how will we know when Cummings will be returned to favor? But I'm sure he will be because
1: the uh, the punch and the beauty of imagination is there. Sometimes I had the feeling he was playing those arrangement word games to get away with saying things that would have been censored back then. No, I've never caught that. No, Mostly they're just...
2: Uh, they're just uh, He's trying to, to duplicate visually some mm-hmm. shape he has seen in the house or in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most famous one, I think, is the poem about the mouse, where you get all parts of the mouse and then you get his tail at the end. Mm-hmm. He, that was play yeah. for him, you yeah. see, and he, 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 he shot... He knew all about uh, Poeta Ludens, uh, the playful poet. And he was a playful poet and he enjoyed it and he had fun from it. And he was also a painter. He had a certain small public for his painting. And he was. uh, a loyal friend to to Ezra Pound, they'd known each other for a long time, and he understood that Pound was not responsible for his points of view, and he just said, "Old Potty, old Ezra." And when they, when they when they had to Ezra up for trial in Washington, he uh, sent him. He just sold a painting, and he sent a thousand dollars down to Ezra for
1: his defense. That was sweet. As I said, he seems to have that. Well, the playfulness and this kind of thing that some of that kind of tone comes through your poetry to me well that's that's the what what I allow
2: myself in the way of decoration yeah. is only jokes of one kind or another now there's a whole section of uh, my collection poems called stolen and contaminated poems and this is where I'm pulling jokes uh, out of classical poets Uh, by twisting things around, you know, and and throwing the present at their present, and so forth.
1: Now, what things would you like to read, then?
2: Well, I might give you some of the the amatory. These are not translations. These are adaptations. And of course, you know about the Greek anthology. It's in seven volumes. It's all of the Greek poetry that existed anywhere for 800 years, beginning in uh, Minos, I guess, and going up through the Latin monks. And these are, uh, they're all epigrams, though they're epigrams. Epigrams, by the way, means uh, scratching on stone. And often these poems are much longer than what we associate with, with epigrams. But they are, many of them are humorous, many of them are, great many of them about women, or battles, or wars, or drinking, or all of that. And this is one, this is one by Paulus Silentiarius. Melissa pulled one reddish hair from her braid and tied my hands with it. I was her prisoner. I told her never to let me go. Here's another one from Paulus. Sometimes secret love affairs yield more honey than those which are open. Here's an anonymous one. She kissed me one evening with wet lips. Her mouth smelt sweet as nectar. I'm drunk with her kiss. I have drunk love in abundance. Meleager, he was one of the greatest of Meleager. Melissa's beauty is the gift of the god Eros. Aphrodite charmed her bed. The graces gave her grace. And another Meleager. In my heart, Eros himself created sweet voice Melissa the soul of my soul Meleager again might it not be that someday in legend soft gliding Melissa will surpass the graces themselves Meleager, I swear it I swear by Eros I would rather hear her whisper in my ear than listen to Apollo playing his lyre. That's the noble Greek spirit, you know, the pursuit of excellence, we call it now.
1: Yeah.
2: Marcus Argentarius. I held her close. We were breast to breast, hers supporting mine. Her lips joined with mine. As for the rest, the little bed lamp was the only witness. I am silent. I'll jump over here a little bit. There's this stuff is so strange. It's this really delightful book. It's these these epigrams and short poems cover every possible subject in in, in the history of human life. And nobody seems to know of the book. It may be because the translations are too stuffy. I don't know. That's what I'm trying to get at here. I, uh, clean, clean clean the extra words out. Beauty without charm is only pleasing. It's nothing to remember. It's like fishing with bait. Fishing with bait, but no hook. It's like fishing with bait, but, but no hook. We fell in love. We kissed. You gave yourself to me. We had much pleasure. But who am I, and who are you? How did it happen that we came together? Only the Cyprian goddess knows. See, uh, Aphrodite was born on Cyprus. Oh. The epithet of her is well, that sounds a lot like one of your poems. Oh, very much well, so. Not stimulated by any of I uh, copy uh, these people yeah. all the time. I'll see if there are any. Oh, this was a nice one. This is Rufinus. Beware a girl who is too ready, but also one who hangs back too long. One is too quick, the other too slow. Look for one who is neither too plump nor too thin. Too little flesh is as bad as too much. Never run to excesses. Getting a little bit sexy here. They didn't have shower baths in the time of Rufinus. Shall we take a shower together, soaping ourselves and rubbing each other, flesh to flesh, and then put on our robes and sip a good wine? The season of such joys is short. Then comes old age, and finally death. This is Philodemus. Make the bed lamp tipsy with oil. It's the silent confidant of things we seldom dare to speak of. Then let it go out. There are times when the god Eros wants no living witness. Close the door tight. Then let the bed, the lover's friend, teach us the rest of Aphrodite's secrets. Mm. That's superb stuff. Oh, yeah. It's just marvelous
0: stuff. You are listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter. We've been visiting with James Laughlin, And now I'd like to talk a little bit about E.E. E. Cummings, who was a major figure, you know, in 20th century poetry. And not only was he an accomplished poet, but he was very accomplished visual artist with works in major museums, including the new Whitney that just opened in New York City's Meatpacking District. When Cummings died in September of 1962, he was believed to be the second most read poet in the U.S., right after Robert Frost. He was experimental in just about every way with poetry, with form punctuation, spelling, syntax. He was often playful, very straightforward, readily understandable, so his popularity is understandable. And, you know, he exudes an extremely positive attitude toward life. And I think that helps attract a lot of people to a poet, his very positive attitude. Well, he was a personal friend of James Lachlan. Now, since we're doing this in early January, I'm going to do you a poem, From E. Cummings, called One Winter Afternoon, at the magical hour when is becomes if, a bespangled clown standing on 8th Street handed me a flower. Nobody, it's safe to say, observed him but myself. And why? Because without any doubt, he was whatever, first and last, most people fear most a mystery for which I have no word except alive, that is, completely alert and miraculously whole, with not merely a mind and a heart, but unquestionably a soul, by no means funereally hilarious, or otherwise democratic, but essentially poetic or ethereally serious, a fine, not a coarse clown, no mob but a person, and while never saying a word, who was anything but dumb, since the silence of himself sang like a bird, most people have been heard screaming for international measures that render hell rational. I thank heaven somebody is crazy enough to give me a daisy. That's one winter afternoon by the late, great E.E. E. Cummings. I'm Charlie Rossiter. This is Poetry Spoken Here. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.